We will now learn an excerpt from the Rambam in Hilchus Mamrim. Rambam in Hilchus Mamrim begins as follows, and he tells us what the process, the procedure is. That's what I wanted to do with you now. Mamrim, rebels. Based in Hagodel Shebi Yerushalayim, the great based in that's in Yerushalayim, in other words, the Sanhedrin of 71, Iker Torah Shabalpeh. They are considered the main repositors of Torah Shabalpeh, of the, of the oral tradition. Vehem Amudei Hahara. They are the pillars of rulings. In other words, they are the legislative bodies. Umehem Choyk Umishpot Yaitzel Chol Yisrael. And from them, statute and judgment goes out to the rest of the Jewish people. Valehen, and therefore the psukim that we've been learning primarily apply to them as opposed to merely the concept of sages in general. Valehen hifticha Torah. Regarding them is where the Torah gives us the assurance and the promise that we should listen to them. Shenemar, as it says, al pi ha-Torah sher according to the Torah that they teach you. Zu mitzaseh. And therefore, following them is the fulfillment of a positive command. And therefore, anybody who is of Mosaic persuasion, anybody that follows Mosaic religion, is obligated by Torah's Moshe to rely all of his actions and activities and deeds from a religious perspective on on them. To lean on them, to rely on them. You have to do all of your deeds based on their rulings. If somebody doesn't do according to their rulings, you are then in violation of a negative command. In other words, there's a positive command that the Rambam just quoted that says, do according to their rulings that's a positive command but then the Torah reinforces that positive command with a negative and therefore if you violate them you're in violation of a low, say a negative one as it says do not deviate from all that they tell you to the right or to the left therefore if you don't do according to their ruling you're in violation of a negative command. Now, we will see, I don't want to get into it, but it's a very big big subject. Does this apply even to rabbinic rulings then? It would seemingly apply to rabbinic rulings. Rabbanon seems to hold that it does. That it, otherwise every Rabbanon becomes a derisive. That's a little bit the Ramban's kasha. The Ramban has a little bit of a kasha on the Rambam, that the way the Rambam lays it out, it's going to come out that there's no such thing as a Rabbanon. How can you ever have a Rabbanon? Every Durabonon, if you violate the Durabonon, you're in effect violating a Durisa, the Durisa of Los Sosra. So they answer the question, of course, that it depends on how you're violating it. If you're violating it the way you violated the Durisa, then you're only violating a Durabonon. Those the Durisa Torah laws, then there's Durabonon rabbinic laws. If a person eats a cheeseburger, then he's violating a Torah law. If he's, if he's eating a cheeseburger made of turkey or chicken, then he's violating rabbinic law. Right? So one is a violation of a derisa, the other is a violation of a derabonon. However, if he says, you know what, these rabbinic laws, such as chicken and milk, 
That doesn't hold water by me. I don't care for that. Then you're violating the derice of Los Osser. So then you're violating the derice of Los Osser. Likewise, if a person says cheeseburgers, the Torah says, the Torah, so if you, uh, it's like this, eating a cheeseburger. Two guys going into McDonald's, one guy's eating a cheeseburger, and the other guy's eating a cheeseburger. All of a sudden, Beryl turns to Shmeryl and says, what are you doing in a McDonald's eating a cheeseburger? He goes, uh-oh, I'm caught. <laughs> okay, I tell you, I like the Big Mac. I like the Big Mac. Or it's cheaper. Huh? You violated the Torah law. And you, Shmeryl, what are you doing over here eating a McDonald's cheeseburger? Come on, the Torah says don't eat a, don't uh, cook a kid in its mother's milk. Yeah, it doesn't say about cheeseburgers. That's not what it's talking about. What are you talking about? I mean, Jewish tradition is that that's what it means, that it means meat and milk. It's rabbinic, you know. Ah, you're violating two things. You're eating treif, and you're also violating los saucer. Okay, that's the difference. The difference, and that could apply to drabon. Unless it could apply on the derisa level, it could apply on the drabon level. If a person eats a cheeseburger because he likes a Big Mac, he's violating one lav in the Torah. And you get malchus for it, you get lashes for it. If, on the other hand, you're eating a cheeseburger because you don't accept the interpretation, then you're violating two derises. One for eating treif, one for lososer. Now, if you're eating, the guy goes and he eats, he only orders a pastrami, uh, chicken pastrami burger, uh, cheeseburger, uh, chicken, uh, whatever you call it, I don't know. Uh, chicken burger, cheese, a chicken cheeseburger. Okay. He orders a chicken cheeseburger. Ah, better yet. He orders schnitzel fried in butter. Okay, there we got it. He orders schnitzel fried in butter. Not margarine, mind you, butter. Sauteed in butter. So if he's doing it because he likes chicken fried in butter, he says, listen, I don't eat a cheeseburger because that's a derisive. Let me only violate it the Rabbonin. So he eats a chicken fried in butter, butter batter, mm-hmm. butter batter dipped chicken. So he's violating the Rabbonin. So, I mean, it's not so simple, but seemingly he's getting away that he didn't violate the rice, he only violated the Rabbonin. On the other hand, if he's doing it because of a disregard, it's only the Rabbonon, then it's a big deal, it's not in the Torah, then already he's violating a derisa of Los Sosur. That's the way most Mephorshim inter- explain the Rambam in order to explain the Ramban's question, that the way the Rambam is going to lay it down, as we'll shortly see, sounds like every Rabbonon is a derisa. Every Rabbonon potentially is a derisa, but not necessarily. In any case, are you, do you get Malchus for violating Los Sosur? Yeah, what do you want to say? Yeah? Do not deviate, do not veer. Are you in violation of, for this derise of Los Sosa? Do you get lashes? Do you get malchus for it? Yeah. Find many places that it says it's only with the Rabuna. Yes. That's the Rambam's cash on the Rambam. So I just answered it to you. It depends. The, the love itself or the Aver is a Rabbonon. But you could still violate Los Sosa depending on what you're doing. If you, a person disregards the Rabbonon because... In other words, if the rabbi says, or the Sanhedrin Paskin, that this chicken is treif, but you ate it anyway, so you ate something treif. But if the reason why you're eating it is because you're disregarding their ruling, then you're in violation of Losasr. Do you get Malchus on Losasr? Here, let's try this one out on for size. I'm you guys. Do you get Malchus for Losasr? 
the second wide line. Now the rule is like this. A love that can that could conceivably lead to a death penalty, even when it doesn't lead to the death penalty, you don't get Malchus for. This love can theoretically lead to the death penalty. Not in the case of the person who violates it, but in the case, as we had earlier, of the Zokain Mamre, which is a very unusual set of circumstances in order to have it. But since he's actually being killed for violation of this love, that means that the love of Loisosur has within it, contains within it an application that could theoretically lead to a death penalty. As a result, even when it doesn't, there's no love. That's the rule. Any love that could have a death penalty application, even without it, doesn't get Malchus. So that's called a lav shenitein lazhoras misas bezden. Why? Because in the case of a Zokin Mamre, that was a member of the Sanhedrin, who rules against the majority of the Sanhedrin, the Allah is misoso bechenek. He's put to death by strangulation. As the Postic says, anybody that does in a mazed fashion, who brazenly goes against the Bezdin, he'll be put to death, but it's referring to a sage of the Sanhedrin. So therefore, because of the fact that it's theoretically capable of being a death penalty punishment for this love, Therefore, there is no malchus on this lav. So the reason why people that are in violation of Los Sosor, where 99.99% of the cases is not a Zokin Mamre, nevertheless, because the same Pusik gives you a lav, and it's as a result of this lav that you're killing a person, therefore you don't give malchus to anybody in violation of this lav. That's just a rule. Okay. But in any case, it's a lav. Now, the Ramban says, what is the function of the Sanhedrin? The Ramban rather says, what is the function of the Sanhedrin? Echod var, where does this apply? Echod varm shalom This applies to matters of tradition. In other words, the Sanhedrin has an oral tradition, received wisdom from previous generations, and based on those traditions, they make rulings. A good example is the cheeseburger. Where do the Sanhedrin get the idea that a cheeseburger is treif. They don't get it from something where they derive it from the psukim necessarily, but rather they get it from the oral tradition. Now the oral tradition in Judaism always was that means, means that meat and milk shouldn't be mixed. It could also have certain allusions in the posik and certain hints to this halacha, but primarily, this is a matter of oral tradition. So anything that the sages rule, in other words, the reason why the Sanhedrin will make certain rulings is for one of three reasons. The rulings derive from one of three reasons. One is matters of tradition, such as the one I just gave an example. So things that they got what's called mipi hashmua, from hearing, right? Shmua means to hear. They got it by word of mouth, from mouth to ear. That's Torah Shabal Peh. They heard it in their ears heard it, Torah Shabal Peh. So matters of Torah Shabal Peh, of oral tradition, says the Rambam, the Haim Torah Shabal Peh, 
This refers to Torah Shabbal Peh. That's how we know that you need a Kezayis. doesn't say in the Torah Kezayis. That's how we know that a mikveh has to be 40 saw. That's how we know that um, an enclosure of a Rosh Hashayochan on Shabbos has to be 10 Tfachim high. These are all matters of oral tradition. That's called Torah Shabbal Peh. So whether the sages rule in the matters of Torah Shabbal Peh or the Echot, the second possibility, is Dvorim Shalomdum Mipidaitam, where they on their own, from their own minds, derive things. Utilizing the principles, the homiletic derivative principles of the Torah that allow you to take law and legislate it, and not le- legislate it, and, and adjudicate it further. In other words, the Sanhedrin acts as a Supreme Court. And Supreme Court is there to interpret things, whether it's the Constitution or previous rulings. The Supreme Court judges and rules based on precedent, but some of that is not received wisdom that they have a tradition on, but rather things that they have to either extrapolate or rule. Like a lot of what rabbis rule about nowadays, and they, they tell you it's the Raisa. How to become the Raisa? They had to go through the halachas, and they had to, based on certain things, derive that, well, if you, um, if, you, if you take a person and you take his heart out while it's beating, even though the person is brain dead, it's murder. Who says? Where does it come from? Where do they get this ruling from? There's no received oral tradition. But the sages that rule had to base it on, on the halachic process. So they utilized the halachic process and they then came to a ruling that also goes into the low saucer. In other words, it's a second form of Sanhedrin ruling. One is based on what's called Torah Shabbat oral tradition, where they tell you on Rosh Hashanah you've got to use a ram's horn. Where does it say in the Torah ram's horn? That's our tradition. That's Torah Shabbat And you've got to blow Tekiyah, Shvarim, Shuvah, Tekiyah. Where does it say that? Some of that might have been actually derived from the 13 Midos that the Torah is homiletically darshan. So that's a second second area. Then the Ramam says a third. The Echod Devorim Shosum Siyog Torah. Matters where they made a Siyog, offense to the Torah. Ulfimasha Things that the hour demanded. In other words, they felt the need to make a gzeira. Those are minhogim, customs which they enacted, uh, decrees that they decreed, or takonas which they enacted. There's a slight difference between the word gzeira, takona, minhogim. It's not, it's not relevant for us. But in the area of rabbinic decree, rabbinic enactment, rabbinic law, this is also within their capacity to make. In other words, the Sanhedrin functioned as a supreme court that ruled on law and adjudicated law and interpreted law. They also functioned as the repository of Torah Shabbat Pet tradition, but they also functioned as a legislative body. They were both a supreme court and a legislative body rolled up in one. In other words, they functioned like a congress and the Supreme Court. They were both. They were, in fact, they had certain executive privileges, they had certain legislative privileges, 
and certain judicial privileges, but they were primarily the judicial and legislative body rolled up in one. That's what the Sanhedrin was. Sanhedrin was a combination of the legislative body and the judicial body. Now, there's a somewhat of a difference between the two functions. In fact, this is where the Ramban says this is a crucial difference. That when they function judicially, then the rulings have the stamp of the rice on it because they're ruling regarding the rices. But when they're functioning as a legislative body, then there could only be legislating rabbinic law. You can't legislate Torah law, only God and the Torah legislates Torah law. But their taqonas and gezeras are of necessity only rabbinic law. So how if they function as a legislative body to create new laws, what they're creating is new rabbinic laws. So therefore, a uh, reading the Megillah and lighting Hanukkah, which are mitzvahs that are derabbanon, those are commandments that are of a rabbinic nature, are only of a rabbinic nature. So the Ramban's kash on the Rambam was, how come he lumps all three together and says that you're in violation of Los Sosser? If you deviate, it would make sense in terms of deviation on the Raisa, but if you're going to say that deviation on rabbinic law is also law saucer, that means every rabbinic law all of a sudden becomes the raisa. And therefore we have to light Hanukkah candles on Hanukkah. Why? Because the Torah says law saucer. And you have to read the Megillah on Purim. Why? Because the Torah says law saucer. So you're doing a deraisa. In point of fact, we are doing a somewhat of a deraisa when we do these things. How do we know that? Because that's why we make a bracha. What's the bracha? Baruch Ato Hashem Elokeinu Melech Olam. We bless Hashem, Master of the Universe, Asher Kiddushanu that you sanctified us, b'mitzvosim with your mitzvahs, v'tzivanu, and you commanded us lahadlik neir shal Chanukah. That's the bracha we make. So we all make a bracha that says, Blessed are you, O Lord, King of the Universe, Master of the Universe who sanctified us with his mitzvahs, and you have commanded us to light Hanukkah candles. Or we say, So we're making a bracha that says, God, you sanctified us with your mitzvahs, and you commanded us to read the Megillah. Where did God command us to read the Megillah? So the Rambam himself says, it's really a Gemara, it's not only Rambam. The Gemara says, yeah, the command comes from, from Los Sosur. Where God says, no, I gave the rabbis the power to make these things under certain conditions. If they made it, then I want you to fulfill their mitzvahs. So therefore, a lot of our brachas that we make, Tonight, by the Shabbos meal, you're going to say, And your wife is going to say, Right? So she makes a bracha on near Shabbos. You're going to make it on Al Nitilas Yodayim. And you're going to make it on many things. All of those things are all based on Lo Sasser. They're all based on the mitzvah of Lo Sasser. That's what gives every Drabbanon a derisive imprint. But the Ramban was bothered still with the question so, how could we say that something is only Usr Midrabbanon? It's automatically also the rice. And why don't we say that every violation, if you eat the if you eat the schnitzel fried in butter, why aren't don't we say that you're in violation of a derisa? So that's why I explained earlier that it depends on what you're doing. 
it's true that every drabonim contains an element of a derisa, but if you're violating it the same way you're violating the cheeseburger as an act of you just want to eat it, so then you're only violating a drabonim rather than a derisa. But if you're doing it because you disagree with the fact that cheese and butter should be usser, you say cheese and butter shouldn't be usser, then you are violating Los Sasser as well, you're violating the rice as well. Yes, what do you want to ask? The fence that's around the Torah that they set up with the rabbinic laws has two parts to it. It has the part facing the world and it has the part facing the Torah. So in a sense, all rabbinic law is always in touch with the Torah. Yes. And I think that's the connection. Why okay, that's true. Because offense has to say. Yeah. We're going to see now the power of Takanas very shortly. Again, I wanted to go through with you all of these things. I mean, I, I don't want to digress too much from the topic, but it's a very important point that you're saying. Every time you're doing an aver that's amazing and you know what you're doing, there's a sense of rebellion that's in it. In the majority of cases, though, although the mind is doing that, it's really following something else. It's following your taiva, your heart. It's following your uh, hungry stomach. It's following your libido. And your mind is being schlepped along. Your mind is being schlepped along once it's like somewhat justified. That's the concept of Ein Odom Choyte Elon Kein The word shtus comes from shota, which means insanity. In other words, you can't sin without somehow trying to place your mind off on the side. It's inconvenient. I want to do this. I don't want my mind to interfere with what my heart and my stomach want right now. So therefore you justify, you talk, or you don't think. You either try not to think or you try creating some sort of a justification and rationalization for it. So therefore, yes, there is an element of rebellion in every aver that's mazed, usually, to a greater or lesser extent. Nevertheless, because to a certain extent, we give this becomes a benefit of being weak and human. That we say, and it is true, that it's not really an act of rebellion. That's the nature of the human being. Your children very often get angry enough and they rebel against you, but they're not really rebellious. That's just that act. That one act is what, you know what, I'm going to digress very, very slightly right now. Ben Sora <coughs> Ben Saramor is the wayward son who's uh, addicted and this and rebellious. And Chazal tell us, Chazal tell us that he's Nidan al Shem Sofo. He's punished now for later. He's punished now for later. That's one kasha. One kasha is how is that possible? How is it possible that the Torah punishes a rebellious child now for what he still didn't do what he's going to be doing later? Whoever had heard of such a thing, you're punishing him now for an act that he's going to commit later, even if it's preventative, but it violates another Torah principle. What's that Torah principle? Ba'asher Husham, Gemara in Rosh Hashanah, Zion, says regarding Ishmael, who was also somewhat of a Ben Sorimor. He was a wild kid, right? Para Adam, he was called. He was a Para Adam. He was a wild ass kid. And when he was dying of thirst, Miraculously, Hashem gave him water. And the angel said, you're going to miraculously give this kid water who's going to grow up and his children are going to harass the Jews and cause the Jews to die of thirst. It was later on when the Jews were exiled 
and they went to their, to their cousins, the Arabs, they said, give us something to eat and drink, we're starving. So they gave him very salty things to eat. And they said, now we're, we're, we're thirsty. So they gave him these big barrels of skins of, of water that were bloated, but it was filled with hot air. And when they put it to their lips and they opened it up, all the air went in and caused them to, to burst. Because they were trying to imbibe all of this water. And instead they got all this hot air in addition to their thirst and their weakness, and they plotted. It says, here they're causing your children to die of thirst. Now he's dying of thirst. Let him die. You're going to miraculously give him water. And Hashem says, Basher Husham. That's what the Pasuk says. In fact, you might as well look at it now. Since Rosh Hashanah is coming, we'll all take a quick look at this right now, a quick diversion. We'll finish next week. Whatever has to still be finished. Pasuk says, in fact, we read this. We read this during Yom Nuram for that reason. Vayishma Elokim es kol hanar. Pasuk Yud Zayin. Hashem heard the sound, the crying of the of the child. Vayikra malach Elokim el hogar min hashemayim. Therefore, Hashem sends an angel and call out to Hagar. Vayomer lo malach Hagar al tiri. Do not be afraid. Kishama Elokim es el kol hanar. Because Hashem has heard the sounds of the lad, Ba'asher Husham, in that that he is there. Well, what are those three words doing there? Hashem has heard the cryings, the pleadings, the prayers of the Nar, Ba'asher Husham, in the place where he is at. What is this Ba'asher Husham? What's, what's going on over here? What's going on over here? So Rashi explains, let's take a look at Rashi. Let's look at Rashi. Rashi is in the second column, three lines down. Ba'asher husham. L'fi ma'isim shu oisa achshav hu nidon. He is judged according to his deeds of now. V'lo l'fi ma'ashu osid lasos. And not based on what he's destined to do. So why is it important to make this point over here? In other words, Rashi is saying, what does Basher Husham mean? That Hashem is saying, He's being judged according to His deeds of here and now, and not based on the deeds of what He's destined to do later on. The reason for this is, The angels were complaining, God of the universe, He whose children are going to cause the death of your children, to die of thirst. You're going to bring for him a well? You're going to give him water? Miraculously? Hashem answered, How do you rule? What is he now? In the Sanhedrin in heaven, how do we rule? What is Yishmael now? Tzadik or Russia? He's a Tzadik. He's destined to be wicked, but right now he's crying and pleading with Hashem and he's davening, he's a Tzadik. He doesn't deserve to die. We'll skip the parentheses. Omer lehem lefi ma'isov shal achshav anidonai. I judge him now based on what he is now. That's why it says basher husham. Basher husham in the place where he is now. Rashi brings down the story of of how the Arabs caused the death of the Jews. We'll skip that for now. So we have a principle. Says the Gemara in Rosh Hashanah. Basher husham. You're judged by what you are now. Very important principle for us. Because otherwise, we run into all kinds of problems. 
how do we do tshuva on Rosh Hashanah? We do tshuva on Rosh Hashanah, we're asking Hashem to judge us favorably. But we know what happens later on during the year, right? What happened last year, and the year before, and the year before that. And what's probably going to happen the next year, and the year after that, and the year after that. So what do you mean, how are you going to be judged on Rosh Hashanah? Well, if you do sincere tshuva, and you're sincerely a tzaddik now on Rosh Hashanah, so Hashem did us a very big favor. He tells you when Rosh Hashanah, the day of judgment is, you know, to prepare yourself to look at your best. Right? If Hashem wouldn't tell us when Rosh Hashanah is, and you don't look your best, so He's going to judge you by the way you look and the way you're acting. Bad news. Hashem did us a favor. He said, you know what? Once a year I'm going to judge you on this day. Get ready for it. You need time to prepare. You have Rosh Hashanah, I mean, you have, you have El, you have Slichas, you have the days before Rosh Hashanah, and you try to prepare. And by being given this time, when you finally come to Rosh Hashanah, you're looking your best, spiritually. Spiritually, you look, you look the best. And you say, God, what am I now? Basher Husham. Basher Husham. So we have a principle of Basher Husham that stands us in good stead every single Rosh Hashanah. And we see that by Yishmoel, who was a kind of a Ben Sarumar himself. So, how can we kill the Ben Sarumar now for what he's going to do later? How can you do such a thing? You're going to kill him now for what he's going to do later. Second Kash is, so what is he going to do later? What is he going to do later? What's the worst? Murder. Murder. He's going to become a murderer. Well, he becomes a murderer. If he becomes a murderer, then you put him to death. How do you put him to death if he's a murderer? Strangulation, no? No? Strangulation? Oh, I'm sorry. Sayyid, beheading. How do you kill the Ben Saramora? Stoning. Stoning is considered the worse punishment than beheading. So you're killing him now because of what he may do later. He didn't do it yet. But we're expecting him to do it. So we're giving him a worse punishment now than what he would do if he finally degenerated to that point of murder. How can you give him a worse punishment now than that what, what the end is going to be? You're giving him a beer So I have two kashas for you. Two kashas. Number one, it violates the principle of Basher Husham. We're punishing him now for later. Then Saramara is Nidun al Shame Sofa for the end. And you're killing him now for the end when Basher Husham tells us just the opposite. That even Yishmol is miraculously saved because now he's better than then. So what are we doing the opposite? And so you're punishing now for then? So then you can't give him a worse punishment than then for the now. Why are we giving him a worse punishment? Two good kashas. Okay, so what, what is Pshat? A Ben is exhibiting behavior now which the Torah deems to be so degenerate. I don't want to get into the details of what the Ben Sarumar is actually doing and how we derive from it these things. It's not important. Let's just accept it as a given. He's exhibiting degenerate behavior that's going to lead him down the path where he's going to reach that point. The exhibition of degenerate behavior is already now and he's already now considered incorrigible. The crimes themselves now are not in themselves as serious. But the incorrigibility of the Ben Saramara is already a given that says this is where it's going to lead you. And therefore, in a preventative way, we're nipping it in the bud. 
So it's not a question that he's a tzaddik now that's going to become a Russia. He's a degenerate now that his degeneracy will lead to that. He's already a drug addict. He's already addicted. And he's going to be buying more and more drugs and he's going to become something which is much more destructive for society later. But the destructive behavior is already evident now. And it's at a formative stage where we're making the assumption that it's incorrigible. You know, if you have a, um, if you're a doctor and you're giving an x-ray, you're a dentist. And a woman comes in and she's eight, nine months pregnant and you give her an x-ray. Usually they won't do it, maybe they'll try to protect it. But if it's given, you'll say, okay, chances are it's not so critical at this point. The fetus is formed. But in the first two, three months, at that critical juncture of when the formation is taking place, a little bit of deviation can mess up the child forever. Depending on when they took the thalamidine, what's it called? Thalidomide, right. When they took that stuff. Again, at a formative stage, it's much more crucial than, than later on. The fact is that a person who commits an act of murder is being punished for the act that he committed. We don't care, is he degenerate or is he not degenerate? That's irrelevant to us in terms of punishing the person. Nowadays in the courts, they make a big thing out of it as to what kind of person he is. Is it just a one-shot deal? The fact is that the crime, the sin of the act of murder is so severe that you're killed for it. It doesn't necessarily mean you are a degenerate serial killer murderer. It means that you commit an act of murder and you're put to death for it. But if we say that you're a degenerate individual who is not committing acts of murder, but you're a murderer, you are this kind of person, you're an animal, you're no longer human, then you're worse than the person that just commits the act of murder. A person that commits an act of murder is punished for the act that he committed. It doesn't necessarily cast any light on the kind of person. He could be a person that murders, a person that ate treif, a person that whatever. It was a one-time thing. But if we could say that you are so degenerate that you are going to be a murderer, it's almost as if there's no free choice anymore. This is where you're heading. That's much worse. Being the murderer already in, in uh, potential, even though you didn't commit the act, tells us about how degenerate and how corrupt you already are. You're worse than the person that just kills people. You're a killer. You're a killer. A Ben Soramor is not being punished now for future misdeeds. He's being punished now for being this corrupted individual who's already corrupted himself so much that we know this is where it's leading to. That's what Torah said. This is where it's leading to. Kill him now before he gets to do those things. But you're killing him now for now. You're killing him now because he's a Russian. If you want to take issue with the fact that maybe he'll do tshuva or not, I said that's a given. We're not going into what exactly the Ben Saramar is. We're not trying to discuss right now how bad he is and how bad he's not. Whether It's a given. Otherwise we're going to get off on a tangent here. We don't want to get into that right now. We're going with the assumption that yes, he's going to be a murderer. Yes, he's going to be this degenerate individual. And we see him exhibiting the behavior now at this tender age of 13, because to be a Ben Saramar, you have to be between the age of 13 and 13 and 3 months. After that, you're no longer Ben Saramar. 
and before that you're too young. So you have to be just at that right juncture. If you're more than 13 and a quarter, you're already a man. You're no longer Ben Saramara. If you're below the age of 13, you're just a child. You're not responsible. You have to be responsible and degenerate and a given that this is where he's heading. If that's the case, you're not punishing him for later. Well, you're punishing him now. But it's a boon to society that he's not reaching the point of where he's going to actually exhibit the most destructive behavior later on. You're killing him now for now. As such, because of the importance of this lesson, that things that you do when you in the formative stage are so crucial because they affect your life later on, we give him the worst of the punishments. Because we're saying that if you become a monster, if you become a monster, it's worse. Dr. Frankenstein is more guilty than the Frankenstein monster. Because you're the one that this is what you've created. A drug dealer. People are considering giving the death penalty to drug dealers. And drug peddlers and people that push drugs. Why? Because look what you're doing for the society. It's not just a question of the act that you're doing. You're, you're doing something that's so destructive that's going to lead to such severe consequences later on. And this is a lesson that has to be driven home. It says, B'chol Yisrael Yishmu All of Israel should learn the lesson. Learn what lesson? Ben Saramar. The Gemara says Ben Saramar never took place according to uh, one shot in the Gemara. And never will take place. Because the convergence of events required to actually put to death of Ben Saramar is almost legally impossible. So what kind of lesson can we learn from the Ben Saramar that never took place? And all Israel should learn the lesson. What lesson? Because Ben Saramor is a theoretical construct. It doesn't have to occur that you're actually putting to death a child, but it's a theoretical construct in the Torah that teaches us the lesson. Look how we view a spoiled brat child that if in his formative years he becomes a drug addict and he takes from his parents and he steals from them and he's a glutton and a guzzler and he's a parasite on society and he doesn't care about anything, he just wants that what he wants. This kid is an animal, he's going to grow up to be an animal and destructive, and we consider that worse than merely a human being committing a bad act. It's true that uh, Ted Bundy or a serial killer, we should maybe stone to death worse than just a murderer because he's a serial killer, but we don't have that in the Torah that gives us the leeway where we judge that. But theoretically, that's what the idea is. The idea is that a person that commits murder is put to death for the sin of murder. But if you're a degenerate animal, if you're a Jeffrey Dahmer, you deserve much worse than merely punished for your crime. You're a degenerate. So we don't really have the loopholes to do that. But Ben Saramara teaches us this lesson that what looks to you right now as being just degenerate behavior is so corrupted. And once we deem him incorrigible, the Torah tells us the lesson that this is so horrible that we're going to give him a worse penalty. In fact, Based on this is why Jews abhor, from the standpoint of Judaism, drug addiction. Drug addiction is considered to be the worst. It's so anti-Jewish. Why? Where does it say in the Torah you can't take drugs or you can't become addicted? What's the sin? Is it a sin of becoming drunk? The Torah says you're not allowed to become drunk. So is it the fact that you're frying your brains, that's the sin? Is it because it's unhealthy? Is that the reason? Smoking is also unhealthy. Good, relatively, this is more unhealthy, this is less unhealthy. Is that what it is? You know, if a yeshiva bakr is on drugs, there's no question, he's thrown right out. He's thrown out of a yeshiva. If he smokes, 
he's going to be thrown out of the yeshiva? Is it because one is doing unhealthier behavior than the other? That's why we abhor it? Can't be. It's not because of the fact that it's that it's detrimental to your health and you're violating the Torah laws of taking care of your health. Yeah, a kid with high cholesterol is eating pastrami sandwiches they're not going to throw him out of the yeshiva. Kids smoking, they're not going to throw him out of the yeshiva. So what is so terrible about drugs? It's not unhealthy. It's not the, it's the fact that it's unhealthy as to the reason why we, why we feel like that. So what's the reason? That's, I, I, that's what I just said. That's, is that the reason why you're throwing him out of the yeshiva? Because Jews abhor drug addiction because of shmatim snafsha seichem. Is that what it is? Is that why? Is that why we abhor drugs? Obviously not. There's no question that it's not because of shmatim snafsha seichem that we abhor drugs. It's not the reason. Smoking. Some rabbis said that. Fine. Again, we're going to go off on tangents all day if we do that. I'm not going to do that now. Smoking is bad for your health. Fine. Don't smoke. It's awesome. Fine. So now when someone smokes, oh, horrible. Is that, the way, is that your reaction to it? So why is your reaction to drugs and Judaism, why do you find it to be so at odds when you don't feel the same way about smoking and Judaism as being at odds? <laughs> it's not because of the Shema that we abhor drug addiction so much. So why do we consider it so against Judaism? It'll lead them to evil acts. It'll lead them to evil acts? Okay. Okay, but where's this principle? Early. Its roots are early. The formation for a drug addict. Okay, it's all early. But what is this that we abhor so much? Is it because you're frying your brain? Some people will say, well, because when you're on drugs, you're not, you're not lucid, you're not... Good, so what about a person who's drunk? I mean, he's all, what? It's deviant behavior. It's deviant behavior. You know, Sir Moshe Feinstein says, so. it doesn't say anywhere that it's trafe. There's no trafe in marijuana. Where does it say in the Torah, don't be a Ben Soramar? You have to understand that a Ben Mor is not eating treif. A Ben Mor is exhibiting certain degenerate behavior and deviant behavior, but he's not, you can't precisely put your hand on what he's doing wrong. And for that reason, where does it say in the Torah, don't be a Ben Mor? We never find in the Torah a punishment unless there's another pasuk that says don't. In other words, whenever the death penalty is, is discussed, there has to be two psukim. One that tells you don't do it. The second pasuk that tells you the consequence that if you do it, you're put to death. Then Saramar, this whole parsha, this week's parsha, tells us the consequence and the punishment. If you're a Ben Saramar, you're going to be put to death. But the rule is that we don't put anybody to death unless we find two psukim. There has to be one pasuk that says don't do Melach on Shabbos, period. Then there's another pasuk that says, He who does Melach on Shabbos is put to death. There's one pasuk that says, Don't commit adultery. There's another pasuk that says, Those that commit adultery are put to death. That's known as Azhara and Onesh. One pasuk for the Azhara, the other pasuk for the Onesh. And the rule is, There is no Onesh unless there's Azhara. So the Kasha is, Onesh we have over here by Ibn Saramara, Azhara Minayin. Where do we have the Azhara from Ibn Saramara? Says the Gemara, it's learned out from the Pasuk that says, Do not eat over blood. Very strange statement. Don't eat a kind of eating that leads to blood being shed. And that's the eating of the Ben Saramar. Ben Saramar who's technically not doing anything, you know, technically wrong, but his whole behavior is it's consumption. It's a degenerate consumption that leads to death. And therefore, Drug addiction 
And taking marijuana and taking drugs is not technically doing what it's like. You're causing yourself to become addicted, to become a degenerate. That's going to lead down this path. Don't do that kind of consumption that's going to lead to this kind of behavior. That's going to lead to you becoming this animal who only cares about yourself. People that are on crack sell their children. They sell their children because they have to have the crack. That, that's how bad it is. That's called eating over blood. And it's so later behavior. This is not because of the later behavior. It's we're trying to teach us how this is the opposition and completely opposed to the Torah. Especially at a formative time. If you spoil your children at certain stages, you're creating a monster. You're a Dr. Frankenstein. And Dr. Frankenstein is guiltier. Don't keep coming back to the Ben Sarmar wisely. I don't want to get into the Ben Sarmar. We're not learning Ben Sarmar right now. I'm saying a lesson. Ben Sarmar is a, is a construct that teaches us a lesson that kids never really put to death because you don't have all the convergence of, of, of factors that are involved in that. But, theoretically, the idea of a person being addicted and going off into life, growing up like that, is something which is so far, so against the grain of the Torah that we give him the worst punishment. Let all Israel learn this lesson. Learn from this and you'll be rewarded. You know what your reward is going to be? You'll learn from here a little bit how to raise your children. That's one of the things. Ah, not because your children are Ben Saramaras, but if you see how the Torah relates to the upbringing of a Ben Saramara, and you could take it back a step further. You could take it back a step further to the marriage itself. Where does it come from? Yifas Tawar. Where does it go? From Yifas Tawar to hating your wife having this kind of a child, the three parshas of the Torah, follow one after the other. It starts off with Yifas Tawar. It goes to the two wives, one is loved and one is hated, and it ends up with Ben Saramara. That's where it ends up. Right? And we had an example of this. We had an example of this with Afshal. So what did we see from all of this? That it all started, if you don't get married right, and you get married for the wrong reasons, what kind of marital life are you going to have? Love, hate, fighting, right? Ahuva and Snua. And what kind of kids are going to grow up from such an environment? What kind of kids are you going to have? Ben Saramaras are going to come from such an environment. And if not the real Ben Saramara, close to it. Learn. Learn the lesson. Ben Saramara never occurred, according to some. And never will occur. And the convergence of factors to have a Ben Saramara is, is almost impossible. So what's... Oh, stone him and everybody's going to learn the lesson. If you're not stoning anybody, or you're stoning someone once in a thousand years for being a Ben Saramar, so what's the Bukhal Yisrael Yishmu V'yiru? How are you going to learn any lessons from it? Droish Darshanit V'kabel Schar. Understand what it's teaching us. Droish Darshanit V'kabel Schar. You'll get reward. You know what the reward is? You'll get married for the right reasons. You won't. You'll realize that if you have a family relationship where everybody's fighting what it's going to produce on the children, and you'll realize what it means to spoil a child in that very delicate, formative stage. What's going to happen? You're creating a monster. And learn the lesson that Dr. Frankenstein is more guilty than Frankenstein. Because that's what you created. You're creating a monster. And Ben Saramore is going to be a monster later. So you're killing him now, you don't want the monster. And a drug pusher is messing up the whole world. 
and look how we view it. And you learn from here how Jews view drug addiction. That's what's so terrible about it. Not because you're not taking care of your life, but it so violates what the Torah is about that we actually kill a Ben Saramara al Shem Sofo. Look, it's not al Shem Sofo. He's exhibiting the degenerate behavior now, which is leading to that, and it's so abhorrent by Jews that we actually give him the worst punishment of all. Worse than for the murder itself, because it's not that he commits an act of murder. He is a murderer. He is a murderer. He's not committing acts of murder. He is a murderer. That's much worse. How do we know that? Again, we're trusting the Torah that if all of these, all of these factors come together, that's where he's going. He ate kosher and everything else. This is where he's heading. That means he's a Ted Bundy. He's a Jeffrey Dahmer. We know now he's a Jeffrey Dahmer. Well, you know what? We're going to kill a Jeffrey Dahmer more than just a person that kills. We'll give him a worse punishment. And that's part of the lesson that we have to learn. That if we create monsters, that's much worse. It's much more destructive. And at such a young, formative stage, it's so crucial. He's a Ben Sarmar, not an Ish, not a, an adult, and he's not a child. He's at that formative juncture. That's what I said earlier. If a woman is pregnant during the first three months, and you shoot x-rays into her, it's much more dangerous than later on. This is a very crucial juncture. And we talked about, mentioned the other day also, that there are times in our lives that we think we have Bukhira, and we think we're making minor choices, we're making major choices. We're not making minor choices, we're making a choice that's gonna affect us later on. When you decided who to get married to, it was a major decision, you could undo it. But it's uh, undoing it is, you make a major decision. Motzah mites. Remember we learned it the other day in the Gemara. You're at a crucial juncture in your life. And when you send your kid to a kindergarten, I always say this, all kindergartens are almost identical. All the kids are cute. They're all cute. And they're all taught nice things. And the difference between one kindergarten and the other, in this kindergarten they teach about pilgrims and about turkey. And in this they teach how to make a bracha on a turkey. But they really... They're all learning olive bays, they're all learning brachas, a little. So what are the parents making their decisions on? It's almost the same. How's it going to fit into my vacation plans in December and January when the school's let out? Right? So your major decisions in life are being based on your vacation time. Oh, uh, is the gym a nice gym? Is it not a nice gym? Do they have a psychologist on staff? These are the narishkeit and the people put into their decision-making process as to where to send their kids. And you know why? Because they all look alike. And then you get kindergarten or pre-1A. It's almost the same. Even the first grade, they're almost identical. Yeah, okay, they learn a little more, a little less. But we all know. From kindergarten, it's first grade, it's second grade, it's third grade. By the time they're in eighth grade, one kid's wearing three earrings and one ear. And the other one's wearing a black hat. But it was the same kindergarten. Almost. Almost identical. And you can't undo those choices. At every stage you could do it, it gets more difficult at formative areas, critical junctures, those minor, what you consider minor choices, are major choices. Learn the lesson of how your choices, you get married for the wrong reason. You got married for the wrong reason. You know what's happening? For the next 20 years, you're fighting Ahuva and Snua. And you know what's happening? You're having kids. What's happening to those kids? They're being brought up in this kind of a home, in this kind of an environment. They're being... And Sarah Myers. And if you bring up the kids also, eh, this choice, that choice, those are crucial choices that you have to make. And those minor things, because they become part of the person's being. 
Now we got to get back to the main point that we're doing. A person's inner core essence is not always defined by the actions that he does. That's why we're differentiating between a person that commits an act of murder and a person who's a real cold-blooded murderer, serial killer. The difference between a Jeffrey Dahmer and a Ted Bundy serial killer who are degenerate, animalistic human beings that are murderers at their inner core essence, the very fiber of their being is degenerate, or a person who commits an act of murder. And for that reason, that's why we're differentiating between the punishment of the Ben Mora, who the Torah defines as this kind of a degenerate person, that the very inner core of his being, his very essence, is that of a Ben Umora, and the person who later on in life makes terrible acts, commits terrible sins, even such as murder. There we're defining it as a person who committed this terrible sin of murder, adultery, idolatry, but it not necessarily reflects on the very essence of his being. It's the Ben Mora who begins this deviant characteristic character traits of being a Ben Mora, Sora from the word Sora, deviation. He's already deviant. And it's Nidin al-Shem Sofo, not because of future acts which he hasn't done, but because that's the kind of a person that he is even now. With this we could understand the question that Barry was asking earlier. All sin, when it's done intentionally, carries within it elements of rebellion. As long as the person is aware of what he's doing, he realizes that he's rebelling against God and he's committing a sin. But because of the latitude that we have to give to human beings, that they tend to follow the dictates of their hearts and their emotions and their feelings and their tithes and their yetzirahs, and the mind follows that, that he'll then rationalize it and try to justify it intellectually and philosophically, we say that primarily he's doing an evil act. There has to be an element of shtus, of insanity there as well, but it's primarily his yetzer horror that's dictating his actions. And to a greater or lesser degree, there is some aspect, some element of rebellion, or at least of self-rationalization and justification for what he's doing. It's primarily an act of passion, of taiva, of yetzer horror, but it contains certain aspects and certain elements of rebellion. For that reason, if he does it over and over again, enough times, he'll become a mummer. He'll talk and develop into this heretic. There may be little thoughts of heresy in each action, which cumulatively will cause him to become a heretic. But the action itself is primarily drawn from the Yetzirah. And therefore, we cut him some slack. And eventually he could do tshuva on this rebellion against Hashem as well. And then we'll consider it Zdainois of Nasek Ishgogos. However, if a person takes the same approach to rabbinic mitzvahs, then it's the same thing. The same way that you're violating the deraisa as an act of passion and taiva and yetzer hara, with only little bits of, of rationalization and justification, and little elements of rebellion. Likewise, 
in the violation of rabbinic law will be the same thing. True, there may be a greater degree of rebellion in it because the callous attitude towards rabbinic law or the disregard can play a more primary role in such a case. But ideally, we view the person as just merely violating a rabbinic law as a result of taiva yates or horror with some either lesser or greater degrees of, of rebellion that's within it. But if the person totally disregards the nature of this law because it's only rabbinic and to him it's nothing and that's why he doesn't care about it then he's in violation of Loisosur. So a regular violation of rabbinic law is only going to be a violation of rabbinic law but when it becomes to a callous disregard for the rabbinic law and the reason why he's in violation of it is because to him it's meaningless and he doesn't care about it then already it's a disregard of rabbinic law and it's a violation of law saucer which is a violation of the derice of law saucer whereas previously it's a person committing an act a violation of law now it becomes a form of heresy it defines the person himself as to the way and the nature in which he's doing it. In Shema, we say, Again, the same root as the word ben sorer, more deviate. To deviate. Vesartem, you will veer from the path. Vesartem, you will veer, you will deviate from the path. And what? You'll become an idol worshiper. Amazing. You're deviating and you're becoming an idol worshiper. And says Rashi, You deviate a little bit from the Torah. And from there, you come to idol worship. You go off to idol worship. Chofetz Chaim says, that's amazing. How can that be? A slight deviation, Vesartem? And you go to Bavartem Elohim Acherim. And he gives the example of a person that goes to a train station. Or nowadays you go to an airport. And you go into the wrong line. And you go to the wrong gate, perhaps. One gate, two gates next to each other. And one goes from Chicago to Los Angeles. And the other goes from Chicago to New York. And you find yourself in New York instead of Los Angeles. Or in Los Angeles instead of New York. And what was the mistake? From a small Visartem. From a small Visartem, you could be on the wrong coast of the United States. From the left coast to the east coast. A small minor mistake. A train switches track, that small juncture. And it goes off into a totally different direction. Visartem. You deviate. You could end up That's what Rashi is telling us over here, says the Chofetz Chaim. And that's the same root of the words of Ben Sorer He's a deviant. He's a deviant. Deviant behavior. But this perversion, which seems relatively minor at such a young, tender age, is major. It's not minor. It's major. That's the lesson that we could learn from here. That it becomes part of his very nature because he's at that, at that critical, formative stage. And it's becoming part of him. He's becoming a Ben Saramara. Not merely that he deviates, he becomes a deviant. For that we kill him. 
That's the lesson of Chol Yisrael Yishmu Viyiru. We have to be very careful about these things, about choices that we make. Next week we'll continue back in, with the Rambam.